Listen to the stories of Tinseltown. We got that song, and yes we do. So come on, days and come on, mugs, and all you others too. Listen to the stories of Tinseltown. They're not only good, they're true. True stories of Tinseltown. Everybody and welcome to True Stories of Tinseltown. Today I have author Dwayne Epstein, who is here to talk about his new book, Killing Generals: The Making of the Dirty Dozen. Thanks so much for being here, Dwayne. Okay, tell me how come you decided to write this book. Ask me that again. One more time. Why? Why did you decide to write this wonderful book? Oh, wonderful! That was the word I didn't hear. Um, <laughs> Well, thank you for thinking it's wonderful. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, like I was saying, I had written a book in 2013 about um, a biography of Lee Marvin called Lee Marvin Point Blank, and it sold very well. It went to number four on the New York Times bestsellers list. So, um, and a lot of stuff happened in between, but which is long and boring, and I won't tell you. But I got a new agent. Um, and his name is Lee Sobel, and he had read Lee Marvin Point Blank and liked it a lot, and he asked me what I'd like to do next. And he, and then he suggested, you know, books about the making of films are very popular right now. How would you like to write a book about the making of Point Blank, the film? And I said, you know, I like that movie, but I don't love that movie. Um, if you want to give me a choice, I would go with The Dirty Dozen. That's my favorite Lee Marvin movie. And I put together a proposal. And he sent it to uh, several publishers, and a company called Kensington Press picked it up right away. And I took it from there. Well, it's a lot of fun. And I, you know, I did read your book on Lee Marvin when it came out, and I loved it. And I was, yeah, it was really good. Thank you. And I wasn't ever a big Lee Marvin fan, but just rereading and reading this book, again, The Killing Generals, I started to love him. <laughs> really, my my drunken, depressed dreamboat here. You know, he's my kind of guy. But I, you know, well, it's funny because he wasn't actually my first choice when I uh, I took on the project. I had met with a writer, a fellow biographer by the name of Marshall Terrell, and he had written a wonderful book on Steve McQueen. And I'm a huge Steve McQueen fan. So we met up. We had dinner somewhere, and he 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 told me, you know, you're pretty knowledgeable about movies yourself. Have you ever thought of writing your writing a biography about somebody? And I said, yeah, you wrote it. <laughs> and then he said, well, do you have any other favorites? And one of the considerations um, was marketing um, and, and, you know, how a publisher and how and why a publisher would want to take on the project. And we went through several people and most of the ones we were thinking about together had already had several books written about them. And then I came up with Lee Marvin and he said, you know, I don't think there's ever been a really good book about him. And it turns out there really hadn't been. And so I kind of took it from there. And that's how Lee Marvin point blank came about. And like I was saying, it took me 20 years because I kept getting the same thing from publishers. They kept saying to me or through my previous agent, um, he's been gone too long. Nobody cares about him. Nobody remembers him. (laughs) And then Schaffner Press finally, uh, um, the publishing company run by Tim Schaffner, he took it on. Luckily, he lives in uh, Arizona, in Tucson, and that's where Lee Marvin spent the last years of his life. So when he was considering the book, he kept running into people who were telling him Lee Marvin stories. 
and that helped immensely. So it came about. He was so interesting, really. And um, uh, it it was a great choice. And it's funny because I think TCM has really awakened a lot of people's love for the old movies and for the movie stars because that's what I do, True Stories of Tinseltown. And it's about, you know old Hollywood, you know, classic Hollywood. So, but it was really good. I mean, I was never a big fan of his or anything, but I love biographies and it was really well done. So, Thank you very much. Were you a humongous fan of this movie? I'm sorry? Were you a huge fan of this movie? Of The Dirty Dozen? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's always been one of my all-time favorite films from the first time I saw it and I was a kid. Um, I didn't see it in the theaters. Um, I saw it when they would air it on TV. Usually Channel 2, Thursday and Friday night, they would do it in two parts, and I would I would watch it every time it was on. When I got older, I was able to finally see it in a revival theater, and it's even more impressive on the big screen. And it's just an amazing movie on several levels. First of all, the, the, the amazing ensemble cast. Oh, really? One of the be- yeah, one of the best all-male casts, almost all-male casts, in the history of motion pictures, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, and also, I love the theme that runs, several themes that run through the movie um, being anti-establishment anti-social uh, um, <laughs> the, you know the idea of redemption that even the worst of us are po- you know can possibly be do good things you know it's not the first time that theme has ever been in a film I mean bad guys doing good things and you know having anti-heroes in general that's been around as long as there's been film and television but it was the way it played out in this particular film that made it so outstanding I, well, we're, I'm going to talk about a couple of the scenes because I know my dad. I don't like war movies unless there's women in them, like, you know, like a love story or something like that, more. Right. But um, my dad and my brothers used to watch these movies, and I would always leave the room. But I rewatched. <laughs> I had to. Get me out of here. Westerns and war movies. I am out of here. James Bond, no way. So... I did. I did watch it, and you know we'll talk about it because there were parts of it that were, whoa, yeah, big time, it's, whoa. It's funny. I because it is truly a guy flick, right? And I was able to interview. Well, I was able to interview. Even even though the movie came out over sixty years ago, I was able to interview a lot of the people that are still around, and there are a handful. And one of them was the actress who played the character that Telly Savalas. You know, kills. Mr. Maggot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Archer Maggot. And, you know, sprickin' you harlot. Anyway. <laughs> he was <laughs> Her name is Dora Reiser, and she was a wonderful interview. She's still around, and she's a lot of, I don't know if a lot of people even know this or even know who she is, but she's also a uh, Holocaust survivor. So it was really weird for her, she told me, for her to play, you know, the girlfriend of a Nazi. <laughs> and and anyway, she told me some interesting stories, and I asked her, too. I, I was like, you know, one of the questions I asked her was, how was it doing those scenes, and what was Telly Savalas like to work with in those scenes? And she said he could not have been nicer. He was a complete gentleman to me, um, whatever they would say cut. But during the scenes when they were shooting, she, she goes, I had butterflies in my stomach. I didn't know what he was going to do. He was great. He was frightening. Oh, yeah, he was. Absolutely. And this was based on a, a book, which I didn't know. It was based on a novel. And, right. Um, yeah, uh, I'll tell you an interesting story about that, in that the author who wrote the novel, his name is E.M. Nathanson, everybody called him Mick, 
Anyway, he passed away in 2016, I believe. But I, I have this friend who's also a biographer, I mean, a, uh, a nonfiction writer. And she wrote a wonderful book about the making of The Graduate called um, Seduced by Mrs. Robinson. Her name is Beverly Gray. And when I had just by chance told her what I had just been contracted for, she told me, you know, I interviewed Mick Nathanson about a year before he died, but the interview never got published. Do you want it? And I went, God, Beverly, yes. So I got very lucky early on in that I got that interview, and she spoke with him for about three hours. And he told me, he told her some wonderful, wonderful stories. That's where I was able to get the quotes from him. And there were other great happy accidents. I was able to find the original producer of the film, um, um, what's his name? Ken Hyman. And Ken Hyman uh, was long retired. He's in his 90s. He's living in England. But I was able to find him because he's he's completely off the grid. He doesn't have any internet connection or anything like that. And I was able to find him. And in finding him, I like to tell people, how come there's no famous Jewish detectives? <laughs> Aren't there? There's got to be. Yeah, you know, there's Colombo, sure, but you know, he was he was played by a Jew. His character was Italian, but anyway. True. Um, when I found Ken Hyman, he, like I said, he's living in England. I found him through his wife. His wife is a famous photographer in England. Anyway. Um, when I found him, the first thing I said to him was, thank you for um, talking to me, Mr. Hyman. And he said, call me Ken. And I said, okay, Mr. Hyman, I will. And when I said that, he said, call me Ken one more time. I mean, call me Mr. Hyman one more time, and I'm hanging up this phone. And I said, no problem, Ken. So I got an interview with him. I interviewed Donald Sutherland. I interviewed, oh. and because I had worked on the book on Lee Marvin, you know, years back, I had interviewed several people when they were still around about working on the Dirty Dozen. And one of them, of course, was uh, Clint Walker, who I interviewed several times. And another was the guy who played the character Corporal Morgan, the MP. His name is Bob Phillips. And Bob Phillips and I spent the day together, and he told me some amazing stories about working on the film. Um, he was really disappointed that when he came to England that they had cut his part down so much. And as I titled one of the chapters, he had said, you know, Charles Bronson has more lines on his face than I have in this movie. That's <laughs> true. Oh, yeah. And didn't that get out? And Charles Bronson was furious. I'm sorry? Didn't that come out and uh, Charles Bronson confronted him on that or something? Yes, he did. And <laughs> Bronson, Bronson said, I just read that in Army Archer's column. Did you really say that? And Bob Phillips read, no, 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 that was his idea. <laughs> he didn't say it or did he, really? He did say it, but he didn't want Bronson <laughs> mad at it. I don't blame him. Oh, my God. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there are great stories. Tons. Oh, yeah, there are several, several really good ones. I just, like I said, I just really enjoy putting it together, especially, like, you know, dealing with the uh, people and the information that I had. Um, I read up a lot about Robert Aldridge, the director, who was a pretty trippy guy. Somebody once asked him, well, it's, it's been said he should have gotten an Oscar nomination for The Dirty Dozen. And I had asked Ken Hyman, is it true that he was asked to change the ending of the movie and that's why he, and he wouldn't and that's why he didn't get an Oscar nomination? And Ken Hyman said, that's absolutely not true. I've heard that for years. It's not true at all. He didn't get an Oscar nomination because he didn't like, which is why the movie is the way it was. He didn't like the Hollywood establishment and the Hollywood establishment didn't like him. It was that simple. He famously said once that, because, you know, 
Biblical movies were so popular and always got Oscar nominations. He said, if I made a biblical epic, I wouldn't get an Oscar nomination. He actually did make one. It was He made Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> did he get an Oscar? No. No. <laughs> he was, see, he was but wrong. That's the kind of mo- but that's the kind of movies he made. He didn't make, you know, Ben-Hur or the Ten Commandments. He did Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> I don't think, isn't that uh, Stuart Granger or something? I think I saw it once a long, long time ago. Yeah, I think I think so. Stanley Baker, the British actor, and I think Jack Hawkins were in it, and some other people. But, I, I mean, come on. Look at the subject matter. I know. <laughs> Our Lord. <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah. That pretty much says it all there. Um, yep. <laughs> so... Uh, you got into it, and, and I want to talk about the ending, because that was hugely controversial then. I was not, ex- we're not going to talk about it right now, we'll get to that at the ending. And there will be spoilers, everybody. If you haven't watched this movie, I highly recommend you do. Um, especially, uh, I think watching him, because re- that's what I did. I watched it first, and then I read the book. And mm-hmm. I think that was the best way to do it, rather than reading the book and watching, you know, reading your book and watching it, because I just noticed so much stuff, and it right. was it was really good. There were, uh, it, I didn't know why they were the Dirty Dozen. They were the Dirty Dozen because they smelled. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's why they were the Dirty Dozen. Like, aha! Well, that's what Lee Marvin tells me, you know. <laughs> they line up, and he goes, so you want to stink, huh? Itch, too? <laughs> And it's Richard Jekyll's character who gives him that nickname. So if you dirty dozen don't mind. <laughs> he was great, too. There are so oh, many amazing actors. Why don't you tell everybody some of the actors that were in this film? Sure. Okay. Oh, I'll do it. Okay. Yeah, you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, well, Lee Marvin was uh, the lead character, John Reisman, and there was Charles Bronson and Jim Brown and Clint Walker and Kelly Savalas and Richard Jekyll, Robert Weber, Ernest Borgnine, Donald Sutherland, um, little Trini Lopez. Oh, that was so uh, funny. Cassavetes, John Cassavetes. Yeah, oh, oh my all-time, I don't know how I left him out. My all-time favorite, John Cassavetes. He was my favorite thing in that movie. He I was very good in that movie. He was real. He was sort of a punk. And these were all people who were in the slammer, and some were waiting to be hung, and others were going to have like 30 years uh, hard labor. Right. Most of, them, most of them were sentenced to be executed. And yeah, it's funny when I talked to Donald Sutherland, um, I had read the novel. I had to, of course, and both in the novel and the film, they never mentioned what he was guilty of, so, uh, his character. So I asked Donald Sutherland about that, and he said, "Yeah, I read the book too, and I'm and it's not mentioned." And he goes, "I can tell you this." I, in my head, he said, in the camera, in my head, behind my eyes, I decided he was guilty of stealing food. And he goes, it's not a big deal, but they wanted to make an exception of his character. So he drew 30, hard, 30 years hard labor for stealing food. <laughs> that poor character had a lot of, he was so great in that movie. He was so good. And that pretty yeah. much propelled him to stardom, Right. That movie? I'm sorry? That kind of propelled him to stardom, to his... Oh, big time. And, and, and what's interesting is when they were doing the table read before they started shooting, they had a two-week rehearsal to, uh, period. And so they were hashing out different ideas. And Clint Walker was the one who was supposed to be the fake general inspecting the troops. But he, he didn't want to do it. He said, you know, I'm playing a Native American, and I think that would be demeaning to Native Americans. And so Richard, Richard sorry, Robert Aldridge, who was at the head of the table during the table read, points to Donald Sutherland and goes, hey, 
You with the big ears. You do it. <laughs> How charming. <laughs> Let it all hang out there, Robert, right? He was great, right? though. He oh, did he was so very, well. He was a very straightforward, you know, in-your-face kind of guy. And when Don, and here's the interesting part. When Donald Sutherland did that scene, and he did it brilliantly, it's hysterical. Um, the When the movie came out, there were, um, what's his face? Oh, gosh darn it. Robert, oh, yeah, Robert Altman was casting MASH. And so when uh, Donald Sutherland's agent proposed casting Donald Sutherland, Donald Sutherland told his agent, he said, look, take that scene from The Dirty Dozen and send it to Altman. Because Altman didn't think Sutherland could do comedy. He really hadn't done any comedy other, other than that one scene. And when Robert Altman saw the scene from, uh, Matt, um, excuse me, from Dirty Dozen, he cast Donald Sutherland as Hawkeye Pierce in the film. And the rest so was it, history. It, it, I'm sorry? The rest was history with Donald. Absolutely. And he's still going strong. He's in his 80s, but he's still working a lot. Yeah, I just saw him in something. Uh, I don't remember what it was. Yeah, I don't remember either, but he's still going strong, that's for sure. I like him a lot. Um, they had a great cast, and they had so many. It was like the swinging 60s, so they would <laughs> <laughs> go yep. out to the groovy places and get drunk, especially Lee, with him some bad self, drinking, partying. Yeah, well, Everybody, or or I either heard stories from individuals who were working on the movie, or I read stories in the uh, archives and research that I did. In that, when they said cut at the end of the day, everybody went out and party, and it was the place to be. It was the swing in London. It was the swing in sixties. It was swing in London in the sixties, and everybody seemed to have a really good time and have um, great stories to tell about that. I mean, it was it was. 1967, it came out um, the summer of 67, and it, and it began filming in April 66, and it went way over schedule and over budget. So at night, they had a lot of fun places to go to, and it was the place where, you know, the Beatles were, the Rolling Stones. Um, Stanley Kubrick was making films. He was making um, 2001 in the same soundstage or nearby and and uh, Roman Polanski was making that weird vampire movie that he made and uh, Casino Royale was being filmed so it, w it was like London in 66, 67 was the place to be and everybody had a really good time. <laughs> Especially Lee Marvin. <laughs> he, oh, you betcha. The actor, one of the actors, they wanted him to be like a nursemaid kind to keep an eye on Lee, but he yeah, didn't want to do that, that. It was like, no, come on. Yeah, and that was and that was Bob Phillips. Uh, Ken Hyman told me that Bob Phillips was hired, yes, as an actor, but he also got hired as what he called Lee Marvin's security. And in truth, in the industry, there's a term for that. It's called babysitter. Yeah. Yeah, he had to be Lee's babysitter. And consequently, because I was able to interview Bob Phillips, he told me all the stories that took place when they were hanging out. One of my favorites is the one about them going to a pub in London and shooting darts and how they almost got in a brawl with all the other uh, people in the bar because of what transpired. Well, it, it was funny. And um, there was so, like uh, Jim Brown. I thought he was really good. And he was actually a good actor. This guy was a humongous football player, everybody. And uh, Mandingo, I think, right? <laughs> Wasn't he Mandingo? <laughs> Do me a favor. Tell me, tell me again what actor you're talking about. Uh, Jim Brown. Him? Jim Brown. Oh, yeah. I, listen, I like Jim Brown. I Me too. Cool. I thought he was great in this movie. And I'm looking at behind-the-scenes photos with uh, Muhammad Ali showing up, who was Cassius right. Clay, I think, at the time. And um, yeah, Well, yeah, he had a fight scheduled in London while they were filming. And so he, he and uh, Jim Brown would uh, work out together. 
they go jogging in the morning. And Jim Brown invited him to the set. They were friends. Well, I love the pictures. There's so many great pictures there. And yep. um, who else? Ralph Meeker, right? Meeker oh, was yeah. in the film. He looked, he looked a little beat better for the You know what I mean? He was sort of, eh, I think he's great. I love him. He's, he's not some wonderful actor, but there's something about him I like. Well, Robert Aldridge worked with him before. Um, Robert Aldridge worked with a lot of the actors before. He worked with Richard Jekyll several times, Ernest Borgnine a lot, and several of the others. But uh, the thing with Ralph Meeker, Ralph Meeker played Mike Hammer in Robert Aldridge's movie Kiss Me Deadly, mm-hmm. which kind of put yeah put Robert Aldridge on the map as a filmmaker. And Ralph Meeker was having issues, one of them being he was an alcoholic, and he was an uncontrollable alcoholic, and his career had really kind of slumped, probably because of it. And so while they were making the movie, he wasn't always in the best of spirits. He was married to an actress named Salome Jens, J-E-N-S, a wonderful underrated actress. She was in Seconds, right, with Rock Hudson? Yes, 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 that's right. She was very good. She played his girlfriend. Yeah. And while they were making the movie, Lee Marvin and Bob Phillips happened to uh, come into the bar when Ralph Meeker was slapping Salome Jens around. And it was kind of touch and go. Bob Phillips, uh, you know, he he covered Salome Jens and Lee Marvin took, took Ralph Meeker out because it was getting kind of nasty. And she told Bob Phillips... I'm getting on a plane, and I'm getting the hell out of here. And they got divorced about a month later, I think. Well, I don't blame her. Nobody wants to be slugged. Ralph, shame on you, Ralph Meeker. <laughs> How could of you? Of um, And uh, I love, you guys have to see this if you watch the movie, Telly Savalas is a deranged, maniacal, southern man named Maggot. Southern, uh, our, our beautiful. Oh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> it, it's, Telly Savalas. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, the character of Maggot, okay, he in the book is actually three different people. There's one guy who's a sexual psychopath. There's one guy who's a religious fanatic. And there's another guy who's a southern bigot, okay? They took all three of those characteristics and put it in Maggot, in Telly Savalas. And you'd never know there were three different people. He played it brilliantly. He really did. He was a a sexually psychotic southern racist bigot who's a religious fanatic. (laughs) You wonder, though. It was the movie. And, uh, you know, he he fit there. But it's like, would I really hire this have this guy who we're going to kill come out and be with the dirty dozen because <laughs> he was he was good but it's so funny to hear that voice going with a southern accent you know who thinks right, telling right. Savalas for that role and Maggot what funny. a great name Jim Brown uh, wrote in his autobiography that when they went to the screening of the film before it premiered, he was sitting next to Telly Savalas. And when you know when Jim Brown kills Telly Savalas, Telly Savalas nudges Jim Brown and went, "All right, let's go." Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> he, he had such an ego; he thought he was the best thing in the movie. Now that he's gone, why watch the rest of it? Oh, wasn't he mad? He thought he was going to be like the star or something. Uh, I, well, that I don't know, but I know. Interestingly, George Kennedy had said that um, he wanted to play the role of Maggot. And um, Robert Aldridge told him, look, George, I can get you to do that, and, 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 um, and, but I can't get Telly Savalas to play your part. So let me let you do what I want you to do and do best. And George Kennedy said, I was quite complimented by that. Well, he did a good job. I loved yeah, George oh, yeah. Kennedy. I thought his character was great, and he was really good in it. I, I enjoyed I thought all the actors did a great job. There was a, I agree. 
There was a difference in the book, though, because they had like love interests in this book. And really, the only woman, the hookers and the woman who got killed that you were talking about earlier. Telly's. Oh yeah, no, yeah, but that's that's another character. In, um, Ian Nathanson said that Robert Aldridge was a lot more generous than he had been because in the book he got one prostitute I know. for the whole dozen. Oh, that was gross. <laughs> I was reading that in your book. I'm like, that is so repulsive. Yeah, <laughs> dirty dozen indeed. Ooh, <laughs> one of them didn't do it though. Just like in that movie, I think there were probably ha- yeah the six women who they had like their last supper kind of deal and they went in right yeah I think he I think it was Richard Jekyll and he brought in eight of them and he said you know he told he told me Marvin they're like cops when you need one there's none around (laughs) (laughs) it was a great scene you know and I'll tell you the truth when I'm watching it the beginning I'm like okay this is it this is sort of like okay this is this ragtag ensemble of you know corruptible creeps and then they kind of have that funny like sort of comedic kind of stuff going on as well there was a lot of ad-libbing going on throughout the movie when somebody would have an idea well i mean it was rehearsed of course but mm-hmm. when when they were doing different scenes somebody would come up with something and it was just, and john cassavetes bob phillips told me bob phillips and john cassavetes were very good friends and bob phillips said when they do that scene and you know the hookers are staring at the dozen and the dozen are staring at the hookers and nobody knows what to do and it's cassavetes who breaks the ice he comes up to one of them and goes Want to dance? And she goes, and she says, there's no music. And he says, try humming. <laughs> he was, his character was wonderful. He was really yeah, good. Yeah, that, and that was, that was his ad lib. He came up with that. Well, he was a great director. I'm sorry? He was a great director, too, for his film. Oh, wonderful. He was, he was great. Cassavetti said in, a, in, in an interview, he said, when, it, when we were at the table, whenever somebody, whenever Aldridge wanted to um, ask if anybody wanted to do this or do that, he goes, I had a ball. I would raise my hand always, or I would shout out, or I would say I'd do it. I would, I would volunteer for anything and everything. And he goes, and it really pissed off the other actors, but he said, I don't care. I had a good time. Yeah, and if it pissed him off, tough. Also, we have to mention Charles Bronson. He didn't sound like a real friendly kind of dude. He sounded like kind of a mope, miserable kind of guy. I love him. He had a real hard time making that movie because of what he, where he was at in his life at that time and his career. He was in his early forties. He had been in the business. Oh, about almost almost twenty years, and he had been and he'd been stuck in kind of mid level success, and he wanted to be a bigger success, but it wasn't happening. And on top of that, he had just divorced his wife, his first wife. He was dating. Um, Jill Ireland, yeah. Yeah. Now, what's interesting, they wanted to get married, but Jill Ireland, ironically, the British Jill Ireland was in the United States filming a TV show, and Bronson was stuck in England making the Dirty Dozen. So he wasn't happy. Oh, and his mother had passed away just before Uh, the movie started. So he was not happy. Well, he (laughs) was a very sensitive dude, that's for sure. Um, But I was shocked. I got to say, Dwayne, I was shocked to read how old he was doing the movie. And there was sort of a brouhaha about a lot of the guy's age, right? Um. I don't know if that's the case. It might have been, but um, you got to remember with these guys, you know, they've been in and out of prison their whole life. They weren't, I mean, they had gotten drafted or they were forced to serve in the military for one reason or another, but you know, prior to that, almost all of them had done time. Um, the youngest one that I know of was uh, Jim Brown. I think he was like 28. 
And he retired from the NFL while they were making the movie. Yeah, because they went over budget big time, right? Big time, you betcha. That was one of the reasons why, um, well, not over budget, but over schedule. And the scheduling, that's why Jim Brown quit the NFL, and it was also the reason why Trini Lopez was written out of the movie. That was funny. Uh, Why don't you tell people that story? Yeah, tell people that's. You should tell people that story. It's a goodie. Yeah, well, according to several sources, he was being a bit of a prima donna making the movie. And um, he was getting on, on Aldridge's nerves. And as luck would have it, one night, Frank Sinatra was in town in London, and he had dinner with uh, Trini Lopez. Now, Frank Sinatra was technically Trini Lopez's boss because he was under contract at Reprise Records, which Sinatra owned. And Sinatra told him, look, you got to get out of this movie. You're hot right now. And if you don't go on tour within the next couple of months, people are going to forget who you are. So see your way out of this film. And keep in mind, too, Frank Sinatra and Robert Aldridge really didn't like each other. They had made a movie together for Four for Texas called Four for Texas, and Sinatra was a big pain in the ass to him. And Aldridge really didn't want to have anything to do with Sinatra. But that being the case, the next day during filming, he, uh, he, um, Trini Lopez was doing the scene with Bronson where they're coming down the hill and he didn't want to do it and he was having troubles, um, you know, running and all this kind of stuff. And when Aldridge said cut, he walked over to the screenwriter who was on set and said, kill him. <laughs> that <laughs> was so, so funny. Did. I laughed, laughed, laughed when I read that book. Yeah, and what's funny yeah. is they wrote him out of the script, and interestingly enough, he, you know, the way they did it was when they did the, uh, <laughs> you know, when they landed behind enemy lines, Jim Brown and Charles Bronson comes up to Lee Marvin and says, you know, we've, we've been looking for um, Jimenez. And Lee Marvin says, where is he? And Charles Bronson said, hanging in an apple tree with a broken neck. <laughs> now, I think that was supposed to be a kind of an inside joke, because at the time, the big hit he had, Jenny Lopez, was Lemon Tree. <laughs> that, I remember that as Lemon Pledge. <laughs> he was, I think he, he got a lot of money for that. Yeah, and what's funny is, Trini Lopez had seen the dailies a few days later, and he went and he went up to Robert Aldridge and said, Mr. Aldridge, I'd like to get back into this movie. And Aldridge says, you're dead, son. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was sort of in a, a really weird situation, though. We got to give Trini that, that, you know, Frank Sinatra's telling them, quit it, you cuckoo baby. And, right? And, and right. what could he do? I mean, it's like, that was tough. How do you say no to Frank Sinatra? Right. Absolutely right. So and the, the interesting thing is, many years later, there was a film called Small Soldiers that was uh, directed by Joe Dante. Pretty decent movie. And as an homage, they got many of the actors who were in the Dirty Dozen, at the t- you know, who were still around, to do some of the voices of, of the animated characters. And <laughs> Clint Walker told me that they, you know, they had Clint Walker in it, and George Kennedy and Ernest Borgnine and Jim Brown, and Clint Walker told me they asked Trini Lopez, but he was asking for too much money, so he did it again. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> he was cute. I didn't know he was an American Indian. I know he was a Native American. I had no idea he was supposed to be that. Yeah, I know. And what's weird is they, uh, you know, the thing about Native Americans generally, I think, if, if not all of them, they don't have facial hair. Okay, um, and and in, in one scene, 
when they decide not to shave or bathe, Lee Marvin says to Ralph Meeker, I'll bet you Posey's been shaving in cold water for you know, ever since he was a kid. And that's ridiculous because, you know, Indians, Native Americans don't shave. <laughs> yeah, I never noticed any with sideburns or mustaches or anything. Well, in there. Oh, you know, doing the whole Western stuff, you know? Yeah, the only reference they make to him being Native American is when Lee Marvin shoots the rope under Trini Lopez and he scoots all the way up. He said, he, he shouts up to Clint Walker. He says, let's see some of that Apache know-how and, re- and re-thread that rope. And what's interesting is in the book, and it really bugged E.M. Nathanson when he saw the film, because he did write in detail about the character of Samson Posey, a lot of backstory and his uh, tribal traditions and what have you. And Nathanson said, I was really disappointed that they didn't give Posey more to do when he saw the film. That disappointed him. Well, he was really good in that as well. I mean, I'm not a humongous fan of of, uh, Clint Walker. What a big dude. Whoa. You met him and he was, what, 6'5 or something? Yep. Something like that. Somebody told me I was interviewing. Somebody told me that one of the so-called lower lower six, a a British actor um, named Colin Maitland, who, uh, what you call it, he... He was a reporter for a long time for the BBC, a sports reporter. He's, he's now retired. But anyway, he told me he made the mistake of getting into an argument with uh, Clint Walker about something, a political argument. And he said, I got about three sentences into the conversation, into the disagreement, when I realized to myself, this is a big mistake. You should not argue with a guy built like Clint Walker. <laughs> well, he's like an unbelievably huge man, and he was conservative, right? He was more of a conservative dude with yes. everything going on at that time. Also- that's exactly what the argument yeah. was. He said, Colin Maitland said they were arguing about the um, civil unrest going on in the United States. And he said, I think the government should step in and settle it. And Clint Walker says, oh, no, these things ought to be worked out by themselves. And then <laughs> he went from there. Well, I love your imitation. That's wonderful. <laughs> uh, you know, I also, interviewed, I also interviewed Clint Walker's daughter. Valerie told me some great stories because she visited the set. She was there um, for most of the shoot, and she was about 16, I think. And it was during the summer, so she was able to be there. Also interviewed uh, Robert Ryan's daughter, Lisa Ryan, and his son, too, um, Chaney Ryan. And (laughs) Valerie Valerie Walker told me a great story that while they were putting the set together, were um, you know the compound, and there were like rolls of, of barbed wire ready to be put up. Jim Brown handed her a football and said, "Throw me a pass." And he ran out, okay, and she threw it, and she goes, I didn't realize how strong I was. <laughs> she goes, it went way over his head. He kept running, and he landed in the barbed wire. <laughs> Our big, handsome boy. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, I was worried. I thought he was going to get mad at me, but he took it well. He was like, not your fault. You just threw better than I thought you would. Well, she she must have been a big girl, right? She must have been a tall girl. I'm sure she wasn't like a Brunhilde or something. Um. I've seen what she looks like. I don't know what she looked like when she was 16, but she seemed like a, you know, um, a good-sized woman. And what's interesting is, too, she had quite a career for herself. She's a pioneer of sorts. She was the first female um, commercial airline pilot. Wow. Oh, yeah. And he, he went to a thing. He was so proud of his daughter. He was right. so proud of her. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah, which is really cool. And at first, he didn't want her to be a pilot. And when she, he he took her, she took him on one of her training flights. And when she saw 
when he saw the seat for the uh, what you call it, the uh, teacher, the advisor, whatever. That's you know, it's like a little fold-out seat that's right near the pilot seat. Clint Walker looked at it and went, "Oh, you can't do this. You're not going to fit in that seat." And she said, "Dad, that's not for me." <laughs> Which I thought was kind of cute. It is cute, and dads and their daughters. Also, Lisa, Lisa Ryan told me one of my favorite stories. She was visiting the set, too. Mm-hmm. And she said she was just leaning against the fence when Lee Marvin came wavering over to her. I guess he was not not sober, which he would be on occasion. And she knew who he was. And being a teenager, she was like, ooh, Lee Marvin. And he leaned over to her, and he he was just about to say something when her her father came around the corner and went, Lee, that's my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) And Lisa Ryan said he looked like he was hit with a stun gun. (laughs) (laughs) He just just straightened up and lumbered away. (laughs) Buzzkill, buzzkill. I I am really a huge fan of Robert Ryan. I think he's he's a wonderful actor from the 40s. I do too, and I think he's one of the most underrated actors of all time. I agree with you. I told Lisa that. Lisa said, yeah, my dad really um, remembered for doing all those great film noirs in the 40s and 50s. And I said, your father was a, was a better actor than that. Much, much better than that. Do you, you ever see him in Billy Budd? And Lisa went, that was his favorite movie. And I went, well, it should be. He was incredible in that. Uh, also, his last film, The Iceman Cometh, which he did with Lee Marvin, he was he was just such an amazing actor. He really was. And you're right. He was underrated. Also, you know, because he was a family guy. I think a lot of times if you're not going out to the parties and doing things like that, you're really not, you know what I mean? You're not so out there, okay, we're going to give you an Academy Award, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But he was he was amazing. He really was. I loved him in, what's one where he plays the bigot, um, Robert Mitchum, the whole gang. He, oh, Crossfire? Yes. He was what that was, that evil was, fiend. He was wonderful. That was his first film, and it was his also one and only Oscar nomination. And he was so frightening in that. He movie. was. His <laughs> eyes, everything about him was evil. He just was horrible. And I loved him. What can I tell you? He was. He played such funny. a good the, freak. The Crossfire is a great movie, and it also, uh, you know, very, it was very controversial in its time because it dealt with anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. But in the book, it was that it's not that they beat up and killed a Jew. It was that they beat up and killed a homosexual. Oh. Was he supposed yeah. to be gay, too, in this? Or it was just, no, he was supposed to be just, they were hating him because he was Jewish. Right. And it's the same way as in, I, I never read the novel, but I know about it. Um, it was called The Brick Foxhole. And it was written by a guy named Richard Brooks, who would go on to become a great writer-director. Um, and that was something that they just couldn't deal with in Hollywood. So anti-Semitism, which is controversial in and of itself, may have been a lot easier to deal with than homophobia. In those days. True. It's, uh, yeah, it doesn't wash, and it would have been, because that that was a no-no pretty much until a lot of years, for a lot of years, yep. it was a no-no. Anyhow, um, the the ending, I was like, we were watching it. I was watching it with my squeeze. We're watching it, and, you know, we like it. You know, it's okay. It's fine. We like it. And spoilers, everybody. This is a spoiler. I highly recommend getting... Um, Getting Dwayne's well, book and then watching can, the movie. Go on. I, I think we can talk about the ending without necessarily giving too much of it away um, and and still expound on it. And one of my favorite stories about, about the ending was uh, John Wayne was offered the lead um, 
the Lee, uh, the Lee Marvin role, and he turned it down. Now, a lot of people think he turned it down because of what you just mentioned, the ending, that it was so violent, that, that um, you know, John Wayne didn't think his audience would like the idea of him incinerating a bunch of people. But that really isn't the reason. John Wayne turned it down. I read a memo that was in the archives that John Wayne wrote to producer Ken Hyman. And in the memo, he wrote, I don't know who wrote this piece of crap, but whoever it is, I'll bet, was a sandal-wearing, long-haired, hippie <laughs> freak carrying a sign against a war he should be fighting himself. Now, having said that, <laughs> Ken Hyman had no, you know, John Wayne had no idea that the uh, screenplay was written by a 67-year-old screenwriting veteran named Nunnally Johnson. So that's where John Wayne was coming from. And Robert Aldridge hadn't come on the project yet. And when he did come on the project, he wasn't happy to find out that John Wayne was even approached. He said, he's, he, you know, I don't like the fact that you even asked John Wayne. It has nothing to do with his politics. That's his mother's problem. And he said, he's just wrong for the part. There's only one guy to play the lead, and that's Lee Marvin. He did it charmingly and... Um I loved him. I, I am a huge fan of his now. And uh, he, it's funny when Lee Marvin read the script and they, when they offered it to him, he had absolutely no problem with that ending. He said it makes total sense to me. He said in war, innocent people die. Yeah. And he said in an interview, he said, "Look, let's not kid ourselves. War is a violent situation. Do you think?" Excuse me. There wasn't innocent people in the bombing of Dresden. And you think about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it's going on even right now as we speak in the Ukraine, in on, on the Gaza Strip. I mean, innocent people die. Yeah, it's, but it's a sad truth. It's a sad truth, and I get it. But also, it it's like you know, just because someone else does it doesn't mean you have to do it too. You know what I mean? You have to be that. It was horrible, frankly, what they did, and that was sort of a huge. We both were like, eh, because we we're liking the movie. And then this happens, and we're we're both like, ew. You know, we just had that kind of, you know, it kind of ruined the movie because it was so horrible that I, and well, everybody, it's horrible. Believe me. What, who was it that said that, uh, I, I, don't, I don't remember now, the source about how, you know, it was... It was over the top because, you know, they didn't just kill Nazis. They killed the, um, the women who were with the Nazis. And it opens to question how innocent is a Nazi's girlfriend or prostitute. I don't know. Um, and that said, there's a line Marvin has, uh, because most of the servants working in the chateau were French. Mm -hmm. And they had one of the uh, one of the dozen standing standing guard with uh, with the French maids and butlers and Marvin's running out and he you know and, and the guard the sentry says what am I supposed to do and Lee Marvin tells him well feed the French and kill the Germans and then he <laughs> runs out <laughs> and that poor guy's like what am I gonna and I don't really want to do this uh, war is not good obviously but that ending mm -hmm. just really honestly it, it left such a bad taste in my mouth. I was like, this, I, I wasn't expecting it. So I'm really glad I didn't read the book first because I was. Well, it's interesting surprised. because they do, in the book, they do attack the chateau, but there's no incinerating uh, people in uh, the, uh, the basement or, or, or the uh, wine cellar. Alive. Um, I'm sorry? Alive. They were alive. I mean, they, right, they burned right. them alive. Oof. Right. 
what they yeah, but what they did in the book was they just excuse me they 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 just bumped people off one by one and set some bombs in in, in strategic places and then shut their way out. There was nothing. Uh, you know, and and the way it's done in the movie, you get the idea. Everybody else is against it too. The, um, when when um, you know they trapped them all in the basement, Charles Bronson tells Marvin, "You didn't think of that, did you?" And Marvin said, "They got to breathe, don't they?" And then they find the ventilators, uh, the opening, and and then Lee, Mar- Lee Marvin tells Richard Jaco to go get some gasoline, and Richard Jaco goes, "Gasoline." Are you sure, sir? And because two of the, uh, Pinkley and Vladek, um, two of the dozen had already been killed, Lee Marmon shouts back, you want to ask Pinkley and Vladek? Now get going. That was his way of saying, look, we're justifying this. Well, you can justify all you want, but also uh, Jim Brown is the one who lit it, right? He kind of did the, the things, and he was like, am I, what? You know, he he was like torn about it himself. Well, what's interesting, I love what Jim Brown said in an interview. He said, uh, um, that that he, he he knew what he had to do. Originally, by the way, they were going to have Hunt Walker do a rain dance in the ending, which he does in the book while he's uh, mortally wounded, and he does a rain dance to uh, ask the gods for this his sympathy or something. I don't know, but they cut that out, and because Jim Brown was a football player, they put that to good use. And before they were going to shoot the scene, when he's got the grenades in his hand, he's ready to pull the pins, he asked Robert Aldridge, he goes, hey, Bob, will you let me kill a Nazi? And he said, you're going to kill a bunch of them, Jim. And he goes, no, no, I just want to kill one on screen, just before I do this. And and, and Aldridge goes, fine, you want to kill a Nazi, kill a Nazi. <laughs> so before he sets off the grenades, he's got his machine gun, and somebody shoots at him, a, a sniper shoots at him, and Jim Brown blows him to bits. And then he throws the grenades. <laughs> Uh, it is definitely everybody a war movie. I mean, it it it, it is like two themes, right? The beginning and then the end. <laughs> it's like two two right. different movies because there is comedy in the movie as well, and a lot of great comedy. Yeah, there was tons. And um, go on. No, I was just going to say one of my favorite things in the movie are some of the takes John Cassavetes had when he's um, you know. When they're doing hand-to-hand combat, and he's with Al Mancini, uh, the guy who plays Bravos, and he flips him, and he and John Cassavetes goes, you know, you got a bad attitude. And Lee Marvin walks by and says, you're going to have to fall better than that. You're going to wind up in a wheelchair. And and when he reaches to help him up, he, Al Mancini slaps his hand away, and Clint Walker had seen it. So he comes walking over and goes, you were a little rough on the little fella. You want to try that with me? <laughs> And Cassavetti's take is hysterical. He he smiles real big and giggles and he winks and he goes, ha ha, okie doke, and he runs away. <laughs> he, he was funny. They they were all just so good. And uh, Telly Savalas Maggot. I loved Ernest Borgnine. He was great. I loved yep. all of them. They were all, it was such a great cast. It was. One of my favorite moments in the movie that really sets the tone and the idea of where everybody is coming from is in the very beginning when they're giving Marvin his instructions and he goes into the, uh, you know, uh, the quarters of, of Ernest Borgnine's office, whatever. And everybody's around this big table, okay? And Borgnine is in charge of this meeting and you got George Kennedy, Robert Weber, Ralph Meeker, Lee Marvin's there. And, <coughs> excuse me, 
Gordon Nine Tells are kind of an offhanded joke, almost snarky. Everybody laughs like they have to because he's in charge. And it shows you how it's anti-establishment. Like, these guys are yes-men for the company. And the company is the U.S. military. Everybody laughs but Marvin. He just stares up at Borgnine. And I think it sets the tone for the film. Well, he was great. I, I mean, the, t- the film opens sort of with a bang, with the guy getting hanged. <laughs> Boom. That right. was, yeah, it's like, wow, opening scene, then he goes. And he's sort of like disgusted, and he walks away. He was so good. And I loved his looks. And um, everybody, if you know Lee Ma- Marvin, one of the things you should know him for is he was, his case was a first palimony, right? Wasn't palimony yes. kind of created yes. for him and um yes. well not by choice <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> michelle michelle marvin she took his name but i loved his wife did you read her book uh marvin's book pamela martin marvin uh what's yes i did yes i did it was so good i would have loved it was really juicy everybody get Dwayne's and get pamela's go uh there I just enjoyed. It was like, I wish I was sitting down, having a glass of wine, listening to Pamela. It was such a great, juicy read. But he loved her very much. He loved his wife, but, you know. I'll I'll, I'll tell you something. His first wife, whom I got to know very well, Betty Marvin, she wrote a book. And I happen to think it's a much better book because she's a lot more honest about her life with and without Lee Marvin. Um, And... When he decided, she writes this in her book, when she when he decided he wanted a divorce, he was in the bedroom. He was sitting on the bed, and he called her in, and he said to her, Betty, I don't think I want to be married anymore. And Betty Marvin said, great, I wish you would have told me that four children ago. <laughs> <laughs> she, that's a book I mean. I read her book. It was so good. It was so true. And, and oh, oh, I thought you were talking about Pam Marvin's book. No, I, I didn't even know she made one. I, I was reading The Wrong Woman. But she, that book was so good. And so yes, inside scoop. And when he won the Oscar, he wanted her to go with him, uh, Lee Marvin. But Michelle didn't like that very much. <laughs> He, you know. well, 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 more than that, more than that, Lee told Betty that they weren't living together anymore. They were separated. Lee told Betty, "I know you wanted to go to the Oscars, but I, what's her face?" Michelle Triola said that if I don't take her, she's going to kill herself. And Betty said, "Good, let her do it." <laughs> Come on, that's terrible, though. I mean, really, the old well, "I'm going to kill that. myself" stuff. Come on. Oh, her, yeah. yeah. Oh, but what I loved, somebody talked Betty out of it. But I loved what Betty's idea was. She goes, "Because I knew I wasn't going to be going to the Oscars, I I was going to wear, I was going to sew up and wear like sweatpants and put the kids in rags and have a big sign that says Lee Marvin's family." <laughs> <laughs> friend talked her out of it and she goes and to, when she told me that she was like you know i still think it was a good idea i should have done it <laughs> well she was great i could see her doing it she was a character i loved her and oh i agree he he really loved her too he felt that how much she helped him he knew that she was really on his team she was a huge uh, important part of his success oh so, big time anytime at, at the time they were together and even after they separated and i mean and, and got divorced and they stayed in contact he always ran any possible movie idea past her he, he valued her opinion very much he would introduce her to people as i'd like you to meet my wife best friend and toughest critic <laughs> well she was she was great and she was a straight shooter and like i said everybody Dwayne's book and her book because they were so good also your yep. leave marvin book is amazing um thank you 
I love it. You've written so many books, Dwayne. Wow, we kazowie. I can't believe how many you've written. I'm on your author's page on Amazon, and you have tons, tons, tons. <laughs> I can't believe it. Lots of good stuff. Um, Thank you. I really, the, I, I really enjoyed this. I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not just saying it because it was like light and fun. And like, I love behind the scenes. I read the All About Eve behind the scenes. I read um, Sunset Boulevard. I have to read the one about the graduation. That sounds like it'd be a fun book, too. But um, I love this. It was really fun getting to know all these guys, getting to know how it came together. Um, all the great stories. So much, everybody. And I'm glad to hear you say that specifically because for some reason, and it is a guy film, and I know that, believe me, but a lot of people think women aren't going to like the book. And I've heard people, mm. friends of mine, family, who read the book and loved it and yeah. who are women, yes. by the way. So I'm very glad to hear you say that. No, it's true. Any, It's just so much really great information about these really wonderful actors. And it's fascinating to read behind the scenes stuff. I loved it. And uh, I, I just, you know, it's like, I don't know, fun, nice read, and, and fascinating. Yeah. And I Thank highly you. And besides, when you get actors that that diverse and that different in person, personas, you're gonna, you know, you're going to have fireworks, and you're going to have fun stories. Um, you know, what's his face? Um, Ken Hyman told me John Cassavetes and Telly Savalas used to argue about where to be. Where, what's the best Greek restaurant in New York? You know, stuff like that. <laughs> he was great. I loved him. And Telly Savalas, I think he said something racist, right? He was getting into his maggot character or something like that. <laughs> I don't know one of them. But there are so many stories, everybody. We just touched on a few. And so many really good ones about the time, about everybody's background, how they got along. And the mm -hmm. swinging, swinging 60s, everybody. Go, go, boots right. galore. It was really fun. <laughs> Here's another Cassavetti story, real quick. When they were filming um, 2001 at, at the next studio, and the studio went to, uh, the company, MGM, went to great lengths to make a, um, a set that resembled the moon, and Stanley Kubrick didn't like it. And when John Cassavetes, who was also a director, found out about it, he said, you know, maybe it's me. I'm just a stupid kid from Port Washington, New York. When I want to shoot the moon, I just put the camera up in the sky. <laughs> He was great. He died young. He died so young, really, when yeah, you think about it. Yeah, Yeah, he died, he died of cirrhosis of the liver. Oh, yeah, he was he, a big drinker. <laughs> yeah, he was always one of my favorite actor, director, writers, whatever. I just think he's terrific. Rosemary's he baby. That, <laughs> <laughs> he had that look about him like a, you know, a tough street kid. Yeah, he and did. he never lost that. <laughs> yeah, he, he was just, I loved his accent, too, and he was really good in Rosemary's Baby, Guy, the evil actor he was very good he, he played those parts really well and yep. uh i loved his wife i thought they were a great couple and I, I heard some wonderful stories about him with um what's her seymour cassell uh, jenna like that. yeah jenna i love jenna and um it was it was uh like i said everybody this book is fun this book is interesting and it, it isn't just for men and watch the movie Watch the ending and go, oof. And <laughs> <laughs> you can read all about what people thought about the ending and the whole thing. It, it is such a good book. And, uh, Dwayne, you are a doll. I enjoyed talking to you so much. 
And you guys should check out Killing Generals, The Making of the Dirty Dozen, the most iconic World War II movie of all time. And that's pretty big if you're the most iconic movie of the of World War II. Yeah, well, when anybody mentions that to me, I just tell them that wasn't my idea for the subtitle. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put up your dukes. I don't think so. Bridge, o- mm-hmm. bridge over, what, what is it, the River Kwai or what are the John Wayne things? What kills me, he's never been in a war. I never knew right. that. I never knew it. I thought he was some war hero. Who, who, who uh, John Wayne? Yes, I always thought he was in the he war. He was never even in the service. I know. So that amazed me. So he was always Mr. Rough and Tumble, like, get in the, go to, go away, get in there, you young punks. Right. And he never went. So I, honestly, I always thought he did. I just found out within a few years ago that I, he never went. I was surprised. Anyway, this book <laughs> is wonderful, that big palooka. I couldn't believe it. Check out Dwayne's book. I will link you guys up to his author page. Please check it out. And Dwayne, you're a the stories are wonderful, and I think you are wonderful. I hope you come on and talk about your book with Lee Marvin sometime, because I really like him. I think he's fascinating. Um, and thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And enjoy this, because you will. Thank you, Grace. I appreciate it. You are welcome. Okay, take care, everybody. Bye. Listen to the stories of